Welcome to Insights with Sights, the Symphony of Scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit slash podcast We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. We come to the fifth Sunday after Epiphany, and the sixth and final Sunday, at least this year, is next week. So too, the direction of our readings will change in Lent. So a brief word about that. In the Christian year, Easter is, of course, the fixed moment in time, the Greenwich Mean Standard, as it were. And it found its place, did Easter, with reference, of course, to Passover and Jesus' Last Supper. In time, Easter was fixed as the Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox, or March equinox, at least in the West. So the date of Easter moves forward and backward in our calendar time by roughly four weeks. The Lenten season leading up to Good Friday and Easter is a fixed period which replicates the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness and Old Testament counterparts to that as a season of Christian fasting and waiting. It always consists of five Sundays, Palm Sunday, and Passion Week. This means that the Epiphany, ordinary time, which leads up to Lent, also expands and contrasts, contracts given the movement of the Easter date. The final Sunday of Epiphany Tide always commemorates the Transfiguration, and there could be as many as eight Sundays prior to it, or as few as four. This year, there are five. I'll have more to say about Transfiguration and its place before Lent next week. It's really a Sunday for preparing for the coming Sundays in Lent, when Jesus walks to Jerusalem to his passion for us. It's less a last Sunday of Epiphany and more an entry window onto Lent. It also marks the next to last Sunday we see of the Gospel of Mark until after Easter. Then the continuous reading in Mark will resume again So this is the final Sunday of our slow walk through the first chapter of Mark. Lent begins with the short account from Mark of Jesus in the wilderness, and we won't return to Mark chapter 2 until Pentecost. The Gospel of John during this period replaces Mark. We see the same general pattern in Matthew and Luke years as well. It gives us the opportunity to hear John's clear baritone voice at this key time in the church year. As we look at the passage from Mark for today, 
I want to say a little bit about the last section of chapter one, which follows it, so as to get a good sense, a sort of final summary sense of the direction of the chapter as a whole before we leave it. One important phrase sits quietly there in verse 38, and it could sum up, I believe, the force of Mark's opening chapter. It's translated variously, for that is what I came out to do, for that is why I came out, that is why I have come, for this I came into the world. For that is why I came out. For that is what I came out to do. That is why I have come. For to this end came I forth. And the old King James, for therefore came I forth. Because the Greek verb here implies a place Jesus was that he has left, the fathers typically thought of that place along the lines of the Gospel of John, chapter 16, for example. Jesus has come forth from his life with the Father. Mark doesn't develop this idea, though in some ways he is consistent with it. In Mark's opening chapter, we could infer that if Jesus had a place its location is far from clear. Nazareth, Capernaum, even the wilderness are contenders. For Mark has no birth narrative. John appears in the wilderness at the beginning of Mark 1, and people go out to him, and this includes an adult Jesus from Nazareth. A Nazareth we hear nothing more about. In Galilee, the action shifts to Capernaum, the synagogue there and the home next door, that as the next chapters of Mark will imply, seems to be Jesus' base of operations. It's the house of Peter where his mother-in-law lives. Leaving the synagogue in our passage today, he heals her and she serves him there. And the whole town gathers around the door for healing. It will have been a busy day. After the sundown, which marks the formal end of the Sabbath, the people begin streaming to him for healing. With little sleep, Jesus gets up long before daybreak to go pray in a wilderness place. Perhaps the wilderness is his real home. That is, the place where he prays is for him home. Or maybe the point is that for Jesus, no place and all places are the place of his activity, his life, such as it is, with us. He has come forth and is forth and must be so. We also get a sense in this chapter, a clear sense that Jesus' healing ministry has briskly taken off. But equally, could be all that he does. Yet he has come forth and will be forth. He silences the demons and insists at the end of the chapter that a man he has healed out of compassion 
not blaze it abroad, as the King James had it, but he does. Yet Jesus cannot be constrained and must continue on through the neighboring towns, must be forth, likely on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, moving from synagogue to synagogue, for that is why he has come forth. The chapter ends with Jesus again returning to the desert, given the fame spreading due to his healing and the man warned not to speak, ignoring him. People come out to him there in the desert all the same, much as they had done for other reasons, to John in the wilderness, as chapter 1 of this gospel opened. Even in the wilderness, Jesus is forth. The demon last Sunday was right to note that Jesus had come out against him. In the spirit of God, Jesus is always forth and must be so. His ministry is who he is. So while Mark does not have any developed thought about Jesus' preexistence with the Father in the same way as John does, Jesus has indeed come forth into this world and is tirelessly in his very self manifesting the kingdom of God he announces. Our lesson relates that immediately after teaching and driving out a demon in the synagogue, Jesus steps straight, straight away, into the house of Peter, number two Main Street, Capernaum, as it were, apparently very close to, if not next door, to the synagogue. And before he can sit down for a meal, the one who will attend him must first be attended to, lifted up, and healed. The verb to lift up is, of course, redolent of resurrection and was likely heard in that way in time. One cannot miss the emphasis on just how pressed and crowded about Jesus is, especially in this opening chapter. His coming forth strikes, like, strikes the world like lightning, and he is overwhelmed, but up to it fully, with little sleep, like the prophets of old running before a chariot, he is off to the next stop, taking only precious time to pray. Listen then to Paul's account of his ministry in his letter to the Corinthians. In the wake of Jesus himself, like an urgent prophet, he cannot be constrained. This comes in a section of the letter where Paul is defending his apostleship and the particular way he goes about it. He demands no wages, yet of course, Paul must live. Though he maintains his rights, he is prepared to forego them. If he works freely, his only ground of boasting is that he has the privilege of sharing the gospel without any cost. Preaching, he says, is not something he wills, but something that has been laid upon him, 
It's a commission. Here we find interesting parallels with Mark's account of Jesus, working tirelessly, immediately, urgently. For this I have come forth. Paul's reward, such as it is, is the joy of sharing the gospel as he proclaims it and brings others within its saving orbit. Our Old Testament passage comes from the comfort, comfort, comfort my people section of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Israel in exile has received double for all her sins. Her debt is now paid. Yet she is sluggish and worn down. Like those Jesus confronts in Peter's mother-in-law and those thronging around his door. God speaks here through the prophet as Jesus acts. God remains fully in charge and able fully to create anew. Kings and rulers are at their best agents in his hand, doing his bidding. They come and they go, but God remains the king forever, and he is tireless in giving power to the faint and weary, we hear in this opening chapter. He lifts them up as Jesus lifts up and serves. They not only arise, but they run without wearying. They are made like unto him who lifts them up and made ready for service like Peter's mother-in-law or the man with leprosy at the conclusion of Mark chapter 1. Jesus is moved with compassion in the same way God speaks the double word of comfort and compassion to Israel in this chapter. The psalm for the day doubles down on Isaiah and Mark. The Lord has pleasure in those who fear him, those who wait for him and wait on him. As the prophet Isaiah says, the wicked who come to destroy men and women are brought down and driven out. God gathers the exiles. He lifts up the lowly from their sickbeds. He delights in rebuilding and remaking and is forth for that purpose 24-7, to which the only response then and now is the psalmist's Alleluia. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of Scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.